Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work helping indie consultants build an expertise moat at philipmorganconsulting.com. David Baker, welcome to The Self-Made Expert. Thank you. Which one of us is a self-made expert? We'll let the listeners decide by the end of this. Put up a Twitter poll. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So some folks will not know who you are. And primarily for them, what does your business look like? What do you do for clients? So it's a one-man band. And I kind of think of it in three buckets. So speaker, author, advisor, and it hasn't always been that sort of mix over these many years. The speaker and the author stuff is pretty obvious, but the advisor stuff is that I work with entrepreneurial creatives. In other words, independent, small to mid-sized firms. I work with the principals of those firms to help them make better business decisions. So I don't focus at all on the craft of what they're doing. For one thing, they know it much better than I do, and there's so much help for that. But I just got this mission many years ago, looking across the landscape and noticing how many firms' futures were tied to the quality of their business decisions and not the quality of their work. And so I try to help them think through those business decisions around financial performance, roles, positioning, lead generation, all those sorts of things. So that's what I do, live in Nashville, but do it worldwide. Is that as brief as you were hoping it would be? That was beautiful. So let's look at that same question through a slightly different lens. So you've described your expertise in terms of like how you work with clients or what the service delivery looks like at a high level. But what does the underlying expertise look like to you? And I can elaborate on that if you need, but... Yeah, I think I need an example of that. So. If we look at something that comes out of academia, we would be able to look at it in two ways. One is we'd be able to look at it as like the problem that they're focused on solving. Like we'd like to reduce greenhouse emissions would be how that's focused on the problem. And then there would be a whole different way to look at that, which is like, well, there's an element of systems thinking, or there's an element of collecting a large amount of data. And from that, trying to produce uh, insight about what leads to greenhouse gases. I'll stop there and see if that kind of gives you something to go on. Well, some of the answer is has required me to develop very specific kinds of IP that are unique to me. I would say there's probably three or four of those where the problem presents itself consistently. And my clients will come to me with a very specific question And I have a very specific system to help them think through that, always recognizing that there are going to be compromises, but I am bringing a very specific tool chest to the table. So the question might be, what is my firm worth? Or stated differently, how will somebody look at my firm who wants to buy it? That would be a very specific question. Or another one might be, what should I be doing at my firm? When you're going into I guess, an area of expertise, you certainly don't know the answers and you don't even really know the questions for a while until you start to notice that similar questions keep popping up. And at the surface, you see 
oh, I could get far ahead. I could solve 50% of this if I just had a unique way of looking at the problem, which is not the same thing as a unique way of solving the problem, but it's because solving the problem requires both parties, but looking at the problem requires an outsider. So that's how I think about what I do. And it's where the pattern matching is essential, obviously. I'm not sure if I really answered the question that you posed, but that's what comes to mind. You've set some valuable context. We are going to circle back and go deeper into the sort of uh, framework of an answer you provided. So just a little more context for listeners. How would you describe the financial success of the expertise that you've created or the business vehicle that you've created to apply your expertise? The financial success for my clients or for me? For you. For me. Oh, it's been probably most of the time, 80% of the time, I would say it's beyond my wildest dreams. And then 20% of the time, I think, oh, shit, I'm such a failure. Like, look at all these other people who are billionaires or making 500 million or whatever. And I think either I don't know what I'm doing or I picked the wrong field. But 80% of the time, especially when I have a clear head and I have a sort of a gratefulness mindset, it's been wildly successful. Yeah, I just, I never would have expected it. I mean, I can be very specific if you want, but in general, that's the answer. Wonderful. When you think about that over time, like the contours of success or growth or achievement or even just your own satisfaction, what does that look like? Is it some sort of like hockey stick up into the right straight line? How would you describe it? Well, I used to chart how much money I made in fees. I wasn't paying attention to the profit because that's, it's such a funny number when you don't have employees. <laughs> you pay yourself an extra hundred and then a hundred less profit. And I remember in the early, I could probably go pull it up, but I remember in the early years, the first year I started tracking it, it was 200 and some thousand. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is really a lot of money. It was way more money than anybody else had ever paid me. That Nobody thought I was worth that in the marketplace. So that surprised me. And I just figured that I needed to track it so that I at least kept within that bracket. So somewhere in the two to 300,000 a year range. And then it slowly went up. I wasn't doing anything differently during the first three or four years, except I was just charging more as I ratcheted up the prices and the marketplace didn't squeak too much. But after that, it took off with that hockey stick thing. And that was caused by two things primarily. One I'm real proud of, the other one I'm not so much. The one I'm really proud of is that that's when the IP started to come. About four years into it, I started to see those patterns and developed a different way of approaching this so that a client knew what they were buying. It just it wasn't me having a conversation with somebody and bringing some experience to the table. It was me applying a process. And that was the first thing that really shot it up very quickly like a hockey stick. The second was me just getting really tired of what I was doing and not caring all that much whether it succeeded or failed. I did care a lot about delivering value, but I didn't care all that much about whether it succeeded or failed because there are a lot of other things I was interested in doing with my life. And I figured that that would be sort of the beginning of the end. That's when I developed this mantra of set your prices when you're tired flying back from a client engagement. That's the best <laughs> time to do it. But it just, all of a sudden, when I didn't care that much, 
the pricing took care of itself and I no longer cared about closing any particular piece of business. I began, I used to tell my prospects, only ones that could handle this sort of truth. It's like, I don't care yet. If you hire me, I will care a whole lot, but I don't care at all yet. And that could be misunderstood and it sounds arrogant. I didn't mean it that way at all. I was just trying to give them a sense of what it would be like to work together. Anyway, those two things together shot it up to, I don't remember when it happened, but it's always over a million dollars a year in fee. And that's against the background of taking quite a bit of time off. So yeah, overall, I'm just very grateful for the fact that I've kind of found a place in this world where people value the advice. So let's go back to the beginning of that journey. So when did you become interested in in going into this area? The folks who have heard you on other podcasts have heard parts of this story, right? Like they've heard you as agency owner and then you closing up shop and then seemingly just on a lark, <laughs> like moving into advisory services. But just let's set the context of time frame to start with. So my own firm was 88 to 94. And it was actually, a, it was not a pretty ending. We had a really serious client concentration problem and at the agency we did. And on top of that, our main client contact was embezzling from the company. And I discovered that and I turned him in thinking there'd be some big reward when in fact it actually just precipitated the whole closing down of the project. Anyway, we kind of muddled around for a while. Meanwhile, I was pursuing some of the other things that I was interested in. It was still a 16 person firm and I was kind of in the shadow of another advisor in the space, a guy named Cam Foote. And he had asked me, he was slowing down. He asked me to teach some of his stuff. And all I was was a voice. I mean, I wasn't, I was just using his curriculum, teaching the seminar was none of my insight and writing some articles for topics he wasn't interested in. And anyway, fast forwarding a little bit, he just said, hey, why don't you think about advising some of your peers? And I didn't think anything would come of it, but he offered to put an ad in the newsletter and a firm called. And I went, it was to Chicago and called Westgate Group, I think, if I recall correctly. And that's when I got interested, when I went there not thinking I had a lot to offer, but the response I got from that very first client who signed up on the spot gave me enough confidence that, wow, all of the observations that I've been making about my own firm and trying to work hard and think hard about what makes a business like this tick and so on, it had an immediate application. And it was a different kind of a client too. It was a client who was really grateful. It was a client who was like me. I understood their world. It wasn't like the typical client where I'm the supplicant and trying to beg for whatever scraps they wanted to clear off the table. It was somebody who was listening and it had the possible impact of changing their entire trajectory. And it wasn't marketing anymore. It was life-saving advice. And I, we all make fun of consultants and I love consultant jokes. But the truth is when you really need one and when you find the right one, and there are a lot of really, really good ones, it can really change your life. Marketing isn't changing people's lives that much. Some cases it is. And that's when my eyes lit up. So that was in 94. And there's some other steps along the way to make that happen. But that was it, really. Let's imagine we're in the passenger seat of your, I think you've called it a somewhat embarrassing car. 
that you parked pretty far away from the client. <laughs> yeah, it was an Impala painted green with a brush. Yeah. Oh, sweet. So we're riding next to you in the Impala on the way to Chicago from, were you still in? Winona Lake. Illinois? Yeah. Okay. What is your confidence level as you're driving to this client? As I'm driving to the client, it was pretty high, but I am not a very good judge of my own confidence level. I regularly bring more confidence to the table than I should. So it was kind of high. And then it shot way up there as I'm talking with them and they're recognizing some value in the conversation. And then it's terrifyingly low on the way home because I just think, oh shit, what did I just promise to these people? <laughs> this is before cell phones, right? If I'd had a cell phone, I would have been on the phone lamenting with my wife what I just promised. So those jokes about the guy who's like, hey, watch this. Those are really about you, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Here, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> yeah, some of the stuff I've done flying and motorcycle and, oh my goodness, yeah. I'm glad to be alive, actually. <laughs> So that conversation, that wasn't a sales conversation. That was the actual consultation. No, that was a sales consultation. I mean, it was a sales call. Got it. Okay. So that was an in-person sales call. Mm -hmm. You closed the deal right there on the spot mm -hmm. and you're driving home and you're saying, oh crap, what have I done? Right. Has that pattern repeated elsewhere in your career? What I'm really probing for here is does a sense of maybe inadequacy is not the right word but a sense of, I've promised more than I'm sure I can deliver. Has that played a role in pushing you forward? Absolutely. It's a constant part of what I do. I think the difference, though, is that I am climbing this mountain, and it's not a free solo situation where I don't have any rope. I am using a, a hammer to put a metal spike in, and I realize that I could fall from where I have promised to go. I could fall back, but that falling back will only be, in this case, 2% of what I've accomplished so far. But unless you're leaning out over your skis, it's a good illustration, I think, it's, you're never going to learn, right? But it has to be, you have to have this spirit of constant learning so that these little steps or these little leaps are really more like steps. If you don't have this perspective of wide-eyed wonder of the world around you and reading tons of publications and newsletters and blogs and soaking all this stuff up, I don't think you really have the business to be taking those steps forward all the time. But I don't know how you could continue to get better and learn and observe unless you are taking those steps forward. Is there a particular example from this time period from 1994 till now that seems to encapsulate that leaning out on the skis for you and what you've done? Sure. So a little one would be the first time you're ever asked to speak somewhere and they just forget to ask you if you've done this before or they forget to ask you for a video or something. I remember that one very specifically. I remember where it was and what I spoke on and all that stuff. But more it's come from people who have, they already have some degree of trust in me as an advisor and they are nudging me forward saying, you can do this. So an example of that would be if I'm just an, a typical consultant to the principal of, a say, a 25-person independent firm, and I've worked with this principal for multiple years doing all kinds of things for him or her. And then 
their situation changes and they're ready to sell the firm. And their mind immediately goes to me because we've worked together and they trust me. So they just have a phone call and they forget to ask too, if I've done this before, but they ask the question, is this something you can do? Which is a much better question than, is this something you have done? (laughs) So I'm again, nudged into a new area of business. This would have been in 90, I guess, nine, maybe 1999. Yeah. And since then, I've done 159 transactions. But the very first one, I was nudged into it by somebody who already trusted me and asked the question very specifically. And I'm just thinking, what's the worst thing that could happen? I just give them their money back. But that doesn't happen. Just it's never that bad. So that would probably be the best example I could think of off the top of my head. So let's expand that a little bit. There are, I think, tools that you use in that situation to learn the things you don't know. Perhaps they're research-based tools. Perhaps they don't look like that at all. But what tools do you deploy? Like in 1999, you get the first request. What happens next? Well, fortunately, Google was just on the scene, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That helps. And I don't mean that to be flippant. I really do mean there's some valuable stuff there. And in the absence of that, Obviously, a library. I don't know if people know what those are anymore, but it's a library. And I'm going to mention something else that might strike you as odd, but I think another tool, quote unquote, tool you use there is to have good relationships with your competitors so that you can pick up the phone and have a candid conversation, and the other person is in the spirit of giving because you have had the spirit of giving as well. You just have a conversation about that. So at the time, for me, that was really easy. I was on the board of a publicly traded company, and another person on that board was Henry Corona. And so we just struck up all kinds of conversations. I had a crash course in valuation. I had learned from him over the years about acquisitions and so on. So that's another one. I'd say a third tool, and this probably isn't fair because it's not exactly what you're asking. And for the record... I don't know what questions you're asking, so this is just a real conversation here. The other, and this one's really interesting to me, and it's that you're bringing a completely clean slate to the table. So you are, and there are about three different areas of valuation theory where I think differently about the established science because as I was reading what established science was saying about this, it just didn't make any sense to me. It just felt like, what? That's not right. You can't be terrified of coming at it from a clear perspective. You have to be aware that what you don't understand at this point might just be your own foolishness and lack of information and that there is a reason why things are done this way. But I'm also a real contrarian. Every major advancement in our society, our civilization has come from somebody who said the rest of the world is wrong. It's just in almost every case, not every case, but almost every case. So I'm not afraid to look at things differently. I usually go to it and say, all right, 60% of this is probably right. Let's look at the 40% that's wrong. This is an opportunity for differentiation. So when I have a new problem that I'm trying to challenge myself on, those are the things I usually bring to the table. There's so much, oh goodness, the signal to noise ratio out there is so crazy, isn't it? Because you start researching a topic and it doesn't take but a few minutes to realize that everybody's a lemming. Everybody's saying the same thing. And you're sort of looking for the people that are on the fringes that are thinking a little bit more deeply who agree with what everybody's saying and then they disagree with some other things. Those are the people I'm usually looking for. 
how do you find them? Is it a sort of brute force sifting through everything you can find, or have you noticed anything that feels like a shortcut? Well, the shortcut to me would be to pay really careful attention to certain people who speak to a multiple set of topics. Because, so you might say uh, Seth Godin would be somebody like that. Or if it's about writing, maybe an Anne Lamott would be somebody else. So I'll just wide, follow about 30 people like that, that I have, and then I'll just, I usually have filed away something that they have said, and then I can go look it up. So it's following specific people and specific publications. An example of that is if I want a more thoughtful, progressive perspective on something, I am always going to go to the Washington Post and not the New York Times. And we could plumb the depths of that. If I want a thoughtful perspective on a more conservative perspective, I'm never going to go to Fox News. I'm going to go to National Review. If I want a perspective on a libertarian, I'll go to the Cato Institute. And none of that stuff scares me. I, so you just identify in advance who are the more reliable people that don't have a set agenda, and that's going to help me. So, And then when that applies to the business, there are definitely there are some writers that, like a David Meister, for instance, there's some writers in our field that... I just consistently want to read, and I'm discovering more and more of those people. It's really an exciting time to be alive. I've just got these lists and lists of people that I love reading. You're one of them because you just, you're always surprising me with the freshness, the new, the deeper look at things. And a lot of your students are actually in that category as well. So like Bob at Science and Story, Tom Miller, email marketing for experts or email for experts, whatever it's like. I'm starting to see the influence that you're having. It just is an illustration. I mean, you didn't ask me to say that. It just, it's true. It's really true. I'm having coffee with Tom later this afternoon, so it should be fun. I've equipped him with some ways to give you a hard time. Oh, good. I think you'll enjoy being on the receiving end of. <laughs> <laughs> so let's cast this for a moment in academic terms. You've described, I think, doing a really broad literature review as part of how you learn about something new. What sort of first-party research might you be doing? And you can frame it in terms of this example in 1999 of your challenge to value a firm for the first time, or you can frame it in some other way. It's fine. But what sort of first-party research are you doing? It's actually gotten a lot harder. By first-party, do you mean primary research? Yes. Okay. In that case, a lot of it depends on how much time and how much money I have. So the best example of primary research for me would be spending more than $300,000 on one piece of IP that I developed that had, there was a first and a second wave. And between both waves, it involved 21,000 subjects, each of whom had three things. I got three things from each of the 21,000 people. One was a face-to-face 30-minute interview. Another was a 24-question qual-quant survey that I had uh, a PhD survey design person helped me with. And then the third thing was the personality profile using one of the six really scientific models of personality testing. And then running that through SPSS, my uh, son, one of our sons, our oldest son was a consultant at the time doing strategy, high-level strategy. And so I would ask him for introductions to some of these researchers or SPSS experts. SPSS is the statistical analysis software that most researchers use. 
And we would just run the results through there to see what it found. And actually, that initial body of research is still sitting there largely untapped. There's so much more in there that I just haven't had the time to spend analyzing and sending to an expert and say, listen, I don't know what to look for here. Just find me some interesting stuff in here. So that would be the best example of, of primary research, but it's really expensive and it takes a lot of time. If I don't want to spend a lot of money or don't have a lot of time, then I might go to the other extreme and I would use a Google paid survey, it's called, that's a tool. Did this not too long ago. I was, had a pretty big speaking engagement and I wanted to do something interesting and fresh. And so I spent, I think it was 300 bucks over 24 hours, surveyed a particular audience demographic and then had my SPSS person run it through the software and then create part of the deck for me. And then I stood up and I had new, fresh data that gave me a different level of confidence. You're going into a speaking engagement. You just want to impress people that you particularize this work for them. So that would be at the other end of the spectrum, anywhere from $300 to $300,000. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great cross-section or sort of core sample of all the possibilities. Let's talk about the big iceberg a little bit more. How did you figure out the methodology for going about that larger, what, 21,000-person sample? Well, I think that probably comes from my academic background, which isn't, it, it's not in this particular space, but spending five years full-time in grad school and teaching at grad school and undergrad as well just understanding the basics of research and writing a dissertation and even back to the days of three by five cards, which even some really well-known writers today still do like Ryan Holiday. So just understanding research and what's valid, the difference between correlation and causation, being willing to have any PhD students be able to press you and say, hey, defend this. What's your methodology? So you just kind of get comfortable with that sort of stuff. But a lot of it is actually pretty basic common sense. I think when I hear somebody do research who doesn't have the pedigree for it, and I certainly don't have that pedigree, I, I usually, it seems like they're doing pretty good work. They're asking the right questions and, and drawing the right conclusions. I'm pretty impressed with the way people can do that. Yeah. So when you export the idea of research out of an academic or scientific context into a business context? What gets left behind and what has to make the journey? Well, nobody's going to ask for citations. They're not going to read the footnotes, right? And then what you'd have to add to this mix in order to make it actually useful in the world is an ability to communicate really clearly and some sort of innate confidence. Or if you happen to be struggling with an imposter syndrome sort of day, you have to be able to shove that down and then deal with it in tears at the end of the day in your hotel. There's something you have to bring the confidence and the communication ability and you leave behind some of the fine points of, because honestly, we are so bad at really, I like the fact checking that publications are doing nowadays, like with the debates going on right now, and then there's fact-checking the next day. It's pretty amazing how poorly we use data, right? But we get away with it because we're famous or we're quoted by some, or we're on a stage or whatever. It seems like two-thirds of the things that people say are not really true. So it's pretty crazy. You don't need... The research that I like to do is it's over rigorous. It's, it's for myself. I just don't want to lie to people, but they're not asking for it. What they're asking for is 
a kernel enough of truth wrapped in good communication and confidence. I don't think that's a good thing. I just think it's, it is a thing. You're saying that from the rigorous perspective, it's a little embarrassing how easily people will take something that is presented as fact and go with it, even if it, the rigor's not there. Yeah. And there are crazy examples that are all over the public discourse nowadays. Like, for instance, the role of combining purpose and brands. That's, all of that stuff was based on the misreading of an original research report or the fact that it takes 10,000 hours to get good at something. That was misreading the fact that uh, coffee is bad for you or the fact that blood... It's amazing how something gets slightly off track and then it gets repeated, repeated, repeated. I don't like to just repeat things. I want to make sure that they have the ring of truth to them and then I want to be the person who examines things on a primary research basis, which is kind of how we started this part of the conversation rather than secondary research. You have a big bent for that as well. I mean, your work is very heavily driven by primary research. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say one thing about that. It just seems like such a, if we look at your 21,000 person sample, $300,000 invested, it seems to contradict what I'm about to say. <laughs> what I'm about to say is it's such a low hanging fruit for differentiation and cultivating expertise. But your $300 example is closer to what I hope folks think about when they think about getting started with this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Or doing 10 surveys of somebody at random and just asking the same three questions would be, you would already be at a significant level above the way most research is done. One of the things that discourages me so much with modern journalism is how they keep quoting Twitter as if somehow that means anything. You know, there's hundreds of millions of users in Twitter. And if you have a particular perspective, you will find somebody on Twitter who agrees with you. And that's not research. Right. <laughs> Some of the research you've done, you've committed significant resources to it. Tell me if I'm reading this wrong. The signal about where you should deploy those resources seems to have come primarily from client encounters or engagements. Yes, exactly right. That's one of the things I wanted to understand. But let's broaden that question beyond just research. Opportunity. It seems to me like folks who commit real resources, whether they're financial or personal, to cultivating expertise, they can do so either based on their own interest or a signal from the market. Again, it seems like the signals have largely come from either relationships with clients or perhaps other types of relationships. Am I seeing the whole picture there or what am I missing? I think you are seeing the whole picture. The question I have about that, and it's an honest question that I don't have an answer for, is that in many cases, the marketplace, or we could say your clients, aren't asking the right questions. So what's our obligation when the subjects that we're trying to help aren't asking the right questions. For instance, people out there seem to be consumed with growth. How do I grow? And that's not the right question. There are so many more important things for them to solve before that. But if I don't talk about growth, will anybody read the rest of the stuff? So it's sort of like I need to coat the vegetables with 
some meaty liquid or something. You talk enough about the things that they want to hear about, and you earn the right to then slide some vegetables in every once in a while. So there's kind of a mix there. I do think you have to be relevant and care about what they care about. But over time, hopefully you earn the right to redirect the conversation to the vegetables sometimes. And I think that's part of what an expert does is an expert in some cases needs to do what's not in his or her best interest, but what's in the best interest of the clients. But you don't earn that right unless you're relevant around the things that they care about. Does that, from your perspective, sometimes feel like you're having to talk about stuff that seems insignificant to you, but if you look at it through the client's perspective, it's it's much more significant to them than it is to you. Yes, for sure. Sometimes I think about this like a marketing funnel and my skin is crawling even as I'm saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we've got this idea of the, there's a wide mouth of the funnel where perhaps the topics of discussion are sort of general interest, but somewhat low in, in importance from your perspective, the expert's perspective. But from the client's perspective, that's what they want to hear, or that's what's on their mind. And then maybe some of them graduate to the next step of the funnel, which is more narrow and represents a a subset of that mouth of the funnel. And then you keep going on, and then you get to the end where you have these issues that to the expert might be really fascinating, but are only relevant to a very small subset of that original group. Do you think of it like that, or do you think of it differently? No, I do think of it like that. And I think there's so much of life that's that unfolds exactly as you've described. Think about a relationship between a prototypical male and female, and they see each other in a room, and there could be male, male, female, female, doesn't matter, see each other in the room, and the one person A knows nothing about person B. They're way high up in the funnel, but something about that person's appearance or the way they carry themselves emotes there's some visceral reaction like oh that person's interesting to me and then you dive deeper into the funnel you get to know that person a little bit better but you can't get to know somebody better if you think they're really ugly from the beginning that's just not the way we're wired yeah so yeah i do think it's that way i mean with kids i felt like i didn't have the right so to speak or i wasn't in the right place anyway to have one of those serious conversations that would happen once or twice a year unless I was spending lots of time and clearly enjoying it with my kids. So yeah, I just think that's kind of the way all of life works. Yeah, right. That certainly trust plays a role in there, like earning the trust or the access to have those more important conversations. Like when you're writing stuff every day and because people are reading it every once in a while, you can step out of your normal character and you could make what would otherwise be a very forceful statement. And people won't take it wrong because they're way down in the funnel with you. Yeah. So when you think about this question of committing resources to research, what role does risk play in selecting for what you might look closer into? Well, I guess the earlier in the process, the more risk there is because your sample size isn't very large. And so you may have gotten one client who's been persuasive and motivated you to look deeply into something and you jump in and do it. And then you realize years later that nobody else really had that question. I think that's why it's important to wait until the right questions surface. And then there's very little risk 
especially if you have a disciplined sort of outbound is a wrong word, but if you have an audience, then you can actually create, you can change the field. I can think across the last 25 years where I actually have changed the national conversation. So if I had done a poll beforehand, it would have been pretty clear that the national conversation didn't care that much about this particular issue. But if you have a disciplined approach with a particular audience, and if the audience is big enough, it doesn't have to be huge, but if it's big enough, then you can, you're essentially programming an event at that point. And there's less and less risk. The bigger your audience, the more you're listening carefully and the more you can actually change that conversation. It's a really beautiful, powerful thing. Let's have a short lightning round of questions about that in particular. Let's call it building a platform. It's pretty similar, I think, to what you just said, building an audience or growing an audience. So how did you build your platform? It was out of necessity. You know how some of these inventions like x-rays and so on just happen by accident. In my case, it was forced. It was a financial decision. I was spending so much money on a full-page ad in every issue of Communication Arts. It came out eight times a year, as I recall, and I think it was 5000 bucks a page. And I was just trying to buy credibility and I wanted to find a way to do it cheaper. So I thought, well, what if I just get people to want to receive a regular email from me? And this was in 97, even before Google. So there wasn't really anything that we would call organic traffic. AOL owned all that stuff. So I decided I would just redirect that money and build three Mac servers in my living room tied to a T1 line, so a DNS server, a web server, and an email server. And I just invited people to give me their email address, and I promised in return to send them insight regularly. And I was kind of at an advantage at this point because there wasn't the walls that people put up around this weren't quite up there. They, it was kind of a novelty. But anyways, that's how it started. I mean, it's just basic, simple content marketing, although at the time, it was a little bit new to me. And from there, it's just mushroomed. The email addresses come largely from people who just hear about what I'm doing and want to sign up. Sometimes it's because they go to a webinar and I put their email address in with their permission and so on. Sometimes it's after a speaking engagement. So it has its own momentum now and it, it's still growing without any very specific things that I'm doing. But it was really just deciding to create that equation. You trust me with your email address and I'll send you useful stuff. And it's been interesting to see because this is not the field I would have chosen to try that experiment in because there are so many people that move in and out of the field so quickly that email addresses get old. And But yeah, so that's how it got started. Oh, you wanted a quick round, right? I'm just talking on and on. Sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. I appreciate the detail because I am, after all, uh, researching a book here as well. Okay. What was your first speaking gig? It was in Sacramento, and it was for a local group. And I spoke on the 12 biggest mistakes that the principals make, unpaid. Beautifully clickbaity headline on the title. And I mean that <laughs> actually as a compliment. <laughs> in other words, that format has become so standardized that we think of it as clickbait. Yeah, exactly. What opportunities came out of that? Or alternately, how much did you have to speak before there was an opportunity you could attribute to the speaking? Well, I did get one client and it was a really good client. I think they spent ten or $12,000 from that speaking engagement for sure. 
So that's a home run at first bat. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I've actually gotten, I've never really been able to trace a lot of work from speaking itself. In other words, from the people who are in the audience, I've never been able to, and I don't actually believe that's a good reason to speak. I think the main reason to speak is because you'll look really stupid if you are stupid. And that's a powerful motivation to try to figure out what you believe on something. So another reason to speak is to tell people that you speak. So often it's more impactful for the people who didn't hear you, especially if you aren't very good. So you just tell them that you keynoted a Salesforce conference, which is more impressive than if they had heard you keynote. Yeah. So not a lot. I got a lot more value from organizing conferences and inviting other people to speak at them. And then I was known as sort of the programming person and sort of the glory from the speaking kind of shown on me, even though I wasn't speaking. So it, it's a mixed bag. I, that speaking is so, it takes so much time. It's, I'm not sure it's going to, I think it has a sliding value in our society at this point. What do you mean by sliding value? With the popularity of podcasts, for instance, being on a podcast is sort of the new speaking. And with there's so many conferences and so many panels at those conferences, I just don't think it's generally a good ROI. It's still valuable to do, but I would prefer that people look for one or two really high-level speaking engagements rather than eight or 10 small ones. David, you've asked to not be asked about this. Your first book was on <laughs> what, the genetics of seed corn, I think? Yeah, right. I ghost wrote a book for somebody. Yep. I'm wanting to ask about publishing generally, but I have to ask about that first book. Did that teach you something about writing or publishing that was valuable down the road, even though topically it's not related or it seems unrelated to what you're doing now? <laughs> yeah, completely unrelated. This was, uh, I think, if I recall, the guy's name was Mike Williams, I think. And he had a company in Monon, Indiana, and he wanted a book written, but he wasn't a writer. So that was the book. I researched it at Purdue, which would make sense because of the ag uh, connection. No, it didn't really teach me a lot because I'd already been through grad school five years and I was managing a publishing firm during my entire time in grad school. So it was just money. It's the only reason I did it. So what role did publishing play for you in building a platform or an audience? It was huge. I still wonder sometimes why I read other people's books because so many of them are so lame and so many of them really should have been an, a magazine article or a, it's a journalism piece and not a whole book. But what I still love about books is that somebody somewhere has spent a lot of time with a particular concept. And that to me is the primary value for anybody to write. It's to help you figure out what to think. And putting a lot of money into a book or a lot of time or whatever it is doesn't ensure you're going to be right, but it ensures you're going to be careful. So that, to me, has been the primary thing. It helps me figure out things. So one book on managing people, that definitely helped me figure things out. Financial management, the marketing firm, helped me figure out exactly what the key metrics are. This most recent book on expertise. So that's the primary benefit for sure. But it's also had very direct impact on the success of the consulting practice we're still in a day where there's some value attached to somebody who writes a book that is at least moderately accepted by the marketplace. And that bar is very low. So I've taken advantage of it. And I keep wondering when the book thing will pass away, but it hasn't at all in spite of how many books there are out there. So some sense of notoriety, figuring out what you should think about something. And the money actually has been great. It's been better than I expected. 
it's still not a lot of money, but it's something like royalties are something like forty to fifty thousand a year, something like that. So it's nice for not doing anything for it, really. The credibility difference between working with a mainstream traditional publisher versus self-publishing, how do you see that, particularly when it comes to building an audience or becoming recognized as an expert? Yeah, that has changed drastically. So I started a publishing firm in 2008 called Rockbench Publishing. We published about 30 books, I think. And at that point, there was a massive difference. So self-publishing a book was sort of like wearing sweatpants to work every day. Is, this is embarrassing, right? <laughs> yeah. It just meant you'd given up. That was the signal. Nobody in the world wanted to publish your book. So you just said, well, screw it. I'll do it myself. That's what self-publishing was in 2008. Nowadays, self-publishing, if it's not done right, is still the same thing. But there's a way to do it right, like to have a separate company name and so on, to really make sure the book doesn't look self-published. You could tell back then what was self-published and what wasn't. And there is no difference now. I belong to a private group of professional speakers. There's about 450 of us. And we were talking about this recently in this group discussion board. And nobody has asked whether the book that has kind of prompted this person's low level of fame or whatever it is, whether it's self-published or not. People invite, they just don't care. They just don't care anymore. And combined with that is just the general decline of publishing in general from the traditional sources. Like it used to be Wiley was widely respected. If you got a book published by Wiley, you were something. That is not the case anymore. Wiley will publish anything. And there's no imprimatur. Just because it's a Wiley book doesn't mean it's any better. So you'll see some really well-known authors. I'm not one of those. Real well-known authors want to take control of their books. And they are doing a spectacular job. And there's no stigma at all to self-publishing if you do it well. Okay. Two more questions in this lightning round, but changing the focus away from the platform question. When you look back at your whole career, were there inflection points where you seized an opportunity or took advantage of a moment that, as you look back on it, was kind of a brief moment or the opportunity wasn't there for long? Yes. I think starting a conference and finding the right partner to do it with me had a huge impact on my career. And it was just, it just arose from a casual breakfast conversation with somebody, the right time, the right place. And that had, it's just hard to overemphasize how much impact that had. Another would probably be the tragedy of some other folks in this space who passed off the scene and left a gap. And so if you're kind of in the right place at the right time, you know, it gives you a fresh opportunity that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So just kind of doing your work on a daily basis and being disciplined and ready to jump on those opportunities. You know, it's also interesting as I think about how to answer your question, having a business that's financially viable so that when those opportunities come, which you never can anticipate, you can lift your head up and step away from the work and not starve because there's enough money sitting there. That seems like a really powerful lesson in all of this because we can never, you know, and I think about some of the relationships I've had with some of my colleagues and my competitors and, 
just being in the right place at the right time, having those conversations, you you just never can anticipate those. But when something happens, can you put work aside for a minute and not starve? It just, that's a really powerful motivation for having a thick enough cushion, I think. Would you frame that as like the ability to invest or sort of strike when the iron's hot? Yeah, exactly. The ability to invest. Because if you don't have that breathing room, if you don't have enough extra oxygen in your tank, you see something out of the corner of your eye while you're underwater, and there's no way you're going to go over there and explore it in a relaxed way. If you just have enough oxygen for this dive, you're just going to have to move on, right? And I just think so much of what you are talking about, that this conversation is about having the luxury to follow your instincts and explore and not starve during the process. On the flip side of that same question, in your career, were there dry spells? And I'm not necessarily talking about financial dry spells, but points where you had to be patient or persist or just be really self-motivated to get through something in order to get to someplace important. Yes, there's been both, both financial dry spells as well as emotional ones. The financial dry spells you would expect would follow kind of the larger economic ups and downs like 2008, 2001. And I remember it wasn't so much a financial dive at one of those. It was more just realizing, oh, shoot, they don't want to buy the same things they did. They care about very different things right now. I need to pivot really quickly. The emotional ones have been much more serious for me. One was when my we lost a grandchild. Obviously, that wasn't as significant to us as it was to our child and our daughter-in-law, but it was, really had a big impact. And then right after that, my father died unexpectedly. Then my best friend died of cancer. And then my mom died. It was like four people all in a row. And I didn't realize at the time how distracting that would be and how I took all of a sudden, you know, I was still doing the things that I had to do with clients who'd hired me. But the things I stopped doing were the, I guess, more the luxuries, the planning and service design and marketing for myself. And then I've struggled, and I've been pretty public about this, I've struggled a lot with depression over the years. At one particular point, it was at the point where I was about to dump everything. And I remember actually calling, and of course, that's when you have a friend or family member in your life, in that case, it's mainly my wife, Julie, can help keep you on track and kind of put one foot down in front of the other. It's about as far as you can think ahead. But then just calling up Blair Inns and his wife, Colette, and we met in Arizona for three days just so I could kind of talk through some things. So yeah, it's not been without some significant drops. It's been an elevator, a slow elevator climb, but then every once in a while the elevator slips a gear and you're kind of like, oh shoot, what was that? Like, oh, we didn't make any. Yeah. So it seems real trite to say that those are the times when you kind of have to really decide what kind of person you want to be. And I think other people have kind of stepped in and rescued me during those times. And I, it's the same kind of thing I've tried to do for other people when I've seen it. But yeah, it hasn't been straight up for sure. David Baker, thank you for sharing your self-made expertise story. You're very welcome. It's been really fun. Time's gone by. I've uh, appreciated the thoughtful questions. Thank you, Philip. 